I had intended to uh, share an illustration with you to uh, open this message up about some people down in Louisiana, but while I'm standing there singing ancient words, God impressed something entirely different on my heart, and there isn't probably uh, maybe 5% of the people in this room who know this story, Um, so I want to share with you something that has transpired. Um, It just goes to prove to us we don't have God figured out. And as much as I read his text and think I understand the character and nature of God, I'm just always blown away. It was in the 1970s when I was a teenager and I was part of a church in Muskegon, Michigan, pastored by a man by the name of Bob Savage. And Bob was the senior pastor of Dalton Baptist Church. How many of you in here are in your teenage years right now? Just raise your hands, okay? I was right where you're at. And I was part of a youth group, and we were a musical traveling youth group. And we went to different churches in Michigan to sing. Bob Savage resigned Dalton Baptist Church in Muskegon and took on the pastorate of a little church in Hazlitt, Michigan, called Hazlitt Baptist Church. And Bob called back to a youth leader in Muskegon and said, "Um, would you bring that musical group over to my church to do a Sunday evening service in Hazlitt, Michigan? And youth leader said, certainly, yeah, let's go. And loaded everybody on the bus and brought us all over here. I was 17 years old, and I stood on these steps right here and sang in a musical, I'll go where you want me to go, dear Lord. I'll be where you want me to be. And I don't know if you know Bob Savage at all or if you knew his ministry. Bob was very vivacious. And he stood in those doors in the back of the auditorium and came down this aisle without looking at his congregation and said to those of us on the platform, Young people, I hope you mean what you just sang because God is going to call you to task on it someday. I heard that and thought, huh, well, fine for them. I know what I'm doing. I'm going to Bible college and I'm going to be a missionary aviation pilot. And so I went into aviation training. It wasn't until March of this year when I'm here talking with the people of what was Grace Church that I remembered this was the church I stood in at 17 years of age. You think you have God figured out and you have him in a box? You're probably a bit like who we're going to look at this morning, a man by the name of Nicodemus who personally met God. I'm going to invite you to turn back to the book of John this morning. We were in John last week looking at the woman at the well from Samaria and... uh, She had a face-to-face encounter with God in the form of Jesus. Personal encounter. This personal encounter we're about to look at this morning is more of an arrogance encounter with someone who thinks they have God all figured out. John, in his book, presents Jesus in a different light than what we see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You may have picked up on some of that last week as we opened it up. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, very much still part of the synoptic gospels in a sense of evangelism unfolded. But 
John was written a little bit later, after the other three books were written. And questions began to emerge from the public about Jesus. He's dead, resurrected, and gone. And so the only way they know about Jesus anymore in this ancient world is through the words of the apostles and the disciples, those who had lived with Jesus. So John sits down to write a text that is much more theological than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he presents Jesus in a different light than the other three books. And you'll see some of that unfold this morning. This is why John wrote what he did in in John chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written that you may maintain your belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He's writing to you as believers that you may maintain your belief. Now, at the point that we're getting to in John chapter 7 is a point in Jesus' time on earth in which there had been a smoldering glimmer of ashes of antagonism between himself and the rulers of Israel. But it was now beginning to erupt into a blazing inferno. The antagonism between the rulers of Israel and Jesus was so intense that Jesus didn't even want to walk in Judea. They had so much rejected him. He chose, rather, to walk in Galilee and in Samaria. And in chapter 6, his brothers come to him and say, literally his biological brothers, and say, why don't you go to Judea? Why don't you go to where your disciples are at and let them see your great miracles that you're doing up here in Samaria and Galilee? And that's the background that sets this up. But Jesus was aware that they wanted to arrest him. So John chapter 7, verse 32 starts out this way. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent out officers to seize him. There's two different ruling classes represented there. There's three ruling classes in charge of Israel at this time. The Sadducees, from whom most of the ruling class came from, they were very wealthy and aloof from the people. And then there were the priests and the The people of Israel didn't really have a lot of contact with the priests. They were kind of up there. They only saw them at the times of offering. And then there were the Pharisees. Now, I don't know what you may have in your mind about the Pharisees, but they actually were very well liked among the people of Israel. Other than the fact that they heaped a lot of rules on them, unnecessary rules in some cases, they had pretty good relationship with the Pharisees because they were of their own. They were part of the working class people. But they were very intelligent and well-schooled. And so the people kind of enjoyed being around the Pharisees. But it was Jesus who began to push their buttons. Now, the Pharisees are known as the separated ones. The definition of them is that they're loyal to God. And if you know your New Testament at all, it's highly ironic that they were loyal to God, and yet they were the greatest opposition to Jesus Christ. Their very name means we're separated for God's work. And yet they stood in God's way. They intended to obey God. They just put so much responsibility on top of the people, heaping law upon top of law. Now, the Pharisees, you may not know, lived in great comfort. If you made it to the status of a Pharisee, you lived off from the Israeli banking system. they, They lived in comfort based on the empire rule. And they had the right to impose taxes on people and to extort, literally, great fees from them as they entered the temple. 
This is the people that Jesus was set up against, by the way, when he flipped the tables over of the money changers. Those money changers answered to the Pharisees. The Pharisees had great authority financially. They were opposed by another group of people that you know of as the Sadducees. Sadducees on this side, Pharisees on this side. And the reason they were opposed was for this reason. The Sadducees did not honor what is known as the oral tradition, the Mishnah. The Pharisees embraced it. The Mishnah was the teachings of the Old Testament. The Sadducees very much held to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, but didn't embrace the oral traditions. And so doctrinally, they had opposition to each other. But here's another thing you may not know. The Sadducees did not believe in heaven or in hell or in the resurrection of the dead. They did also not believe in a coming Messiah. The Pharisees did, and they were very, very vocal about it. So much that they believed that a Messiah was coming, that they were constantly teaching the people, when Messiah comes, he will do this. When Messiah comes, he will do this. But yet Messiah was right in their very midst, and they missed it completely. How could they be so blind to something they were watching for? They listened to his warnings. They saw his miracles. They heard his interpretations of the word. They watched how he loved, but they completely missed it. I'm going to give you a little background, and I'm not going to um, teach too much on this background, but what I would like you to do is take your Bibles and turn over to John chapter 3. And I want you to understand who Nicodemus was before we get into the text this morning. John chapter 3 and verse 1, and let's just read together. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. By that, by that phrase right there, it means he was part of what's known as the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a ruling class, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, and I think I told you this last week, if you underlined in your Bible at all, underline that every time you see it. When it says truly, truly, it means firmly. You cannot go back on this. Firmly, firmly. Truly, truly. So whenever you see Jesus say this, you can write it down as good as gold. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Notice that Jesus has just answered a question the guy didn't even ask. And it causes him now to ask a question. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Verse 9. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Didaskalus is the word in Greek. Look at the definition of that. It's not just an instructor, not just a special instructor. 
It's a master teacher, a doctor. Nicodemus was the most educated of the most educated. So Jesus rightly says to him, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? You know theology inside and out and you don't get it? What is it that's blinding you that's standing in your way? Now Jesus responds to him because he's heard the words, but he totally missed the meaning. So follow the theology of this in verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe me, how will you believe it if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. I'm going to stop you just for a moment there, and you can circle if you want to, no one. Even if you have a pew Bible. If you don't own your own Bible and you'd like to take a Bible with you, those pew Bibles are there for you to take. If you circle in your Bible, no one has ascended into heaven. That is Jesus Christ's personal repudiation of all other world religions. So when Islam says that their great prophets ascended into heaven, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, the Word, the Creator of the universe says... No one has ascended into heaven but me. I am the only one but he who has descended from heaven. That's authoritative doctrinal proof. Jesus said, I'm it. I'm the only one. No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Nicodemus, the teacher of teachers, is getting an incredible theology lesson. Follow this because I know you've heard it if you grew up in church. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. How do you respond when you're challenged? I wish I could respond like that. How do you respond when you're challenged theologically? Instead of letting those defense walls go up when you talk with a coworker or a relative who doesn't understand why you believe what you believe, know what you believe and why you believe it. Jesus did this. He intended to elevate the level of the thinking of the master teacher of Israel. So he gave him a great theology lesson and said, here is why. My primary goal is to help you to understand. I am whom everyone believes that I am. Now, let's transition for a moment. I'm going to give you just a little more background. You've heard probably for years the word Sanhedrin. Even if you're not familiar with the Bible and you saw maybe the movie The Passion of the Christ that Mel Gibson did a few years ago, the Sanhedrin was referred to in that movie. The Sanhedrin is the ancient ruling system of Israel. They are the supreme court. They're not a class of people. They were an organization, a governing body. And Pharisees belonged to the Sanhedrin and Sadducees belonged to the Sanhedrin. They are the rulers of the Jews when you hear that mentioned. Now, a person who is on the Sanhedrin council could be removed. The only way that they made it to the Sanhedrin was to prove that their scholarship, 
their level of knowledge was greater than the other 71 members who were already on the Supreme Court. So when Nicodemus is coming to Jesus, he's not just coming as a man who is inquisitive. He's a Pharisee who is also a member of the Sanhedrin. And that's why he said, we know that you are from God. He's part of a ruling council. Interestingly enough, in 30 AD, the Sanhedrin, the great Sanhedrin, lost their authority to execute criminals. Up until that point, they had the ability to put offenders of the faith to death without question. And Rome removed that authority from them. So that when Jesus was put on trial, that's why the Sanhedrin no longer had the authority to carry out the execution themselves, and they had to go to the Romans and ask for permission. Now, from 30 A.D. until 70 A.D., their authority was transferred to another Sanhedrin, a lesser Sanhedrin, run by a man by the name of Gamaliel. Under Gamaliel was a young man who was being trained, a disciple, His name was Saul of Tarsus. And when Gamaliel gave the authority to Paul, Saul of Tarsus, to execute Christians, it was under the authority of the Sanhedrin that had been transferred to him. In 70 AD, when the temple was destroyed, the Sanhedrin was destroyed, the great Sanhedrin. Interestingly enough, a lot of people who believe in the prophecy of the second coming understand that probably until the great Sanhedrin is reinstituted, everything is not quite in place for the return of Christ. Let me read to you a news article from 2004. October 13, 2004, Israeli News Network. A unique ceremony, probably only the one of second of its kind in the past 2,000 years, is taking place in Tiberias today. The launching of a Sanhedrin the highest Jewish legal tribunal in the land of Israel. The Sanhedrin, a religious assembly that convened in one of the holy temple chambers in Jerusalem, comprised 71 sages and existed during the Tanatic period from several decades before the Common Era until roughly 425 Common Era. Details of today's ceremony are still sketchy, but the organizers organizers announced their intention to convene 71 rabbis who have received special rabbinic ordination. Within the last three years, a Sanhedrin has been reestablished, given rabbinic ordination. And here's a phrase I want you to learn. Keep it with you and think of it. Say this word with me, shmika. Shmika. And say it with some enthusiasm, shmika. Okay. When someone was given shmika, That means the rabbinic ordination had been passed on to them. The authority to make decisions and institute judgment about the things of God. For them, as a holy people, there was no greater authority than to have shmika. Now, it's a confusing word, but it means literally the leaning on of hands. If you placed your hands on someone and said, I have tested him, and I believe his theology and his doctrine is accurate. He knows his stuff. He has Shmika. Shmika could not be easily transferred. And it was rabbinic authority. Interestingly, it had to be granted by three individuals who were also a member of the rabbinic order. 
unless it had come from another source, like Moses was considered to have Shemekah because he was personally appointed by God. The same with Isaiah. The same, interestingly enough, with Jesus. When Jesus is baptized by John and comes up out of the water, what does God say? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The transfer of authority, shmika. That's the phrase they use to describe what happened there. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus appeared, the disciples are watching. And God comes down in the cloud and said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Shmika. That's what's taking place there. So the people, the Sanhedrin, the ruling system, the rabbis, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they recognized Jesus had authority. He had Shmika. Now I want you to go back to John 7. This is all set up for the few verses we're going to read now. John 7 and verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Just like we learned at the well last week with a woman of Samaria, the rivers of living water. Jesus is authenticating himself. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus, at this point, if you look at the first few verses, the first few words of that verse, it says, Jesus stood. Because rabbis always taught in a sitting position with all of their followers around them. And the only time they stood was when they wanted to be heard by the multitude. And the very next word that says crying out is kradzo, where we get the word crazy from. Because this is what he said. Hey, listen to me. And he's inside the temple. And the temple walls are huge. And his voice is echoing off. And he yells out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me for a drink. Because from me, there's rivers of flowing water, living water. The people understood what this meant. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. What an offer. Based on what you learned last week, if you were here, about what living water meant, this was to fill the innermost longings of the soul, the deepest cravings, those things that you just, nothing satisfying. And Jesus saying, I've got something that satisfies. I am the river of life. I am the living water. Remember what the woman of Samaria learned. That was an individual affirmation from Jesus to the woman at the well saying, this is who I am. This is a public declaration for everyone. If anyone in public, he's standing up. So this is going to cause now climax of controversy. Here's why. In the seven days of this feast, the Sanhedrin did not rule. They did not work. These were vacation days for them. And so they mingled among the people. And the rabbis and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they're out in the temple courts. They're not in the chambers. They're with the people. They're at the party having a good time. 
this great day of the feast. This is not just any party. This is called the Festival of Booths. This was a celebration that was instituted by God to celebrate their coming out of the wilderness wanderings into the promised land in which they now had flowing water. No longer were they living in a desert. So as part of that tradition, they would gather water on the last great day of the feast. Now, what do you know about Jesus as his name? If you were going to pronounce it in Hebrew the way you've heard it before, how would you say it? You would say Yeshua. We have that up there, Lauren? Let's keep going. There you go, Yeshua. From Hebrew, it means salvation. Jesus' name, his very name that God said, you shall call his name Jesus. You shall call his name Yeshua. All right? Now, this is very significant. As the priest would leave the temple area, they would carry golden vessels with them, and they would go to the pool of Siloam. They would gather up water on the last great day of the feast, and in these golden vessels, carry them across the temple. And as they were carrying them across... They would recite this from Isaiah chapter 12. Behold, God is my Yeshua. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and song. He has become my Yeshua. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of Yeshua. You getting this? Jesus is saying, I am that source. I am Yeshua. I am salvation. And people, no wonder they were beginning to murmur. This is overwhelming to them. What he's really talking about is the Holy Spirit. That which I will give to you, that will indwell you, from that will flow rivers of living water. Now let's jump down to verse 39. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus is giving a new revelation here. These people were always under the law. And now he's transferring things over to the fact that they're going to be under the Spirit. Jesus isn't doing away with the law. But there's a Spirit coming in that will indwell them. The prophet Ezekiel spoke of this. I will put my new spirit in you. You that have been made of stone, I will give you a new heart. Now let's look at verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words were saying... This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ, meaning Messiah. Christ means Mashiach, Messiah. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? These people didn't really understand who Jesus was. He just appeared on the scene, and they didn't know his background. The prophet that they were referring to goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. When they say, this certainly is the prophet, they're talking about the one that Moses promised. And so these people understood. Now, verse 42 says, Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Interestingly, the very verse that they use from the Old Testament to refute that Jesus could have been the Messiah is the very one that authenticates that he is who he is. Because they're saying, isn't the prophet supposed to come from Bethlehem? They didn't know that he was born in Bethlehem and that he moved to Nazareth later. This is new revelation to them. 
Verse 45, we see that a battalion of officers had been dispatched to arrest him. Verse 45 says, the officers, these are like the MPs, the police. They came to the chief priest and Pharisees and they said to them, why did you not bring him? In other words, why didn't you arrest him? Look at their response. The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. Even the uneducated and the unlearned. The temple guards were guards because they couldn't get jobs doing other things. These guys were not educated. They had never heard teaching like this. And they're willing to tell their bosses to their face, I didn't do my job because the guy you sent us to arrest shouldn't be arrested. Never has anyone spoken like this. I think of John and Peter after the resurrection of Christ standing in the temple, cutting people to the heart, telling them what they had just done in executing Christ. And they said, nevertheless, you were ignorant. You didn't know what you were doing. But let us tell you who Jesus really is. And Scripture, when you look at it in Acts chapter 3, says that the leaders of Israel were standing in the background listening to them. And what does it say? It says... They recognized they were uneducated and unlearned men and that they had been with Jesus. So they left them alone because they taught with authority. Jesus was teaching in a way that people had never heard before. This was unveiling their minds. He's saying, I am your source of life. Verse 47. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. These are religious snobs. When Oxford and Cambridge decided to admit uncommoners, the commoners, I'm sorry, in the 1600s to allow them to attend the university, they had all the students who signed up to go to Oxford and Cambridge on a list. And those of nobility were to put their name down and the ranking of the family that they belonged to. And those that were commoners that were going to attend the school had to put their name on the list, but because they had no family lineage, they had no title, they had to put down sine nobilitate. Sine nobilitate. But because they didn't want to spread it all out and the commoners were not well educated, they asked him to do it as an abbreviation in Latin. They said, put this down. Go ahead, Lauren. S-N-O-B. That's where the word comes from, snob. Because the ruling class thought they were above them. That's what you see unfolding here. The Pharisees were so consumed with themselves, they weren't even willing to listen to the witness of their own guards saying, this guy is amazing. And they're saying, you haven't gone to him also, have you? None of the Pharisees have done that. Well, as a matter of fact, the Pharisees now become irate. And you see it come out in the conversation because they assumed nobody could be right except them. Here's why. Nicodemus reappears on the scene. Verse 50. Nicodemus, he who came to him before being one of them, one of the Sanhedrin, said to them, 
Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? Listen to the contempt in their voice. They answered him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. That's their only response to him, as though he's dirt. He's from Galilee. They had put God in a box. They believed that they had him all figured out. This is the way it's going to happen. We know what's about to happen. Don't tell us. We're the educated ones. Even a slight word of caution, a perhaps you should consider this, in their minds was an endorsement. It was the equivalent of endorsing Jesus. And they would have nothing to do with it. It was just because what they had instructed him to do. Look at the very last sentence in that verse. Search and see. Nicodemus had literally done that. You read about it back in chapter 3. He had searched it out for himself. He went right to the word. He went to Jesus and asked questions. The very thing they told him to do is what he had done. Does our law condemn a man without first hearing and finding out what he is doing? And they give them this scornful rebuke. So what does Nick do? The very next time you see Nicodemus, Nick takes action. Now, he's gone from being an educated man who confronted Jesus at night to then becoming one of the crowd listening to Jesus to then becoming one who had heard Jesus himself willing to confront those whom he hung around with, his social circle, and say, you're not going to condemn them that easily. Aren't you invest, going to investigate it yourself? The very next time we see Nicodemus is at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus. John chapter 19 and verse 38 will be on the screen. Read it along with me. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. If you know nothing else about a Pharisee, and you never remember this message again, remember this. They would not, not under any circumstances, come in contact with a dead body. It was against the rules. Nicodemus, who started out as a lawyer investigating, became a lawyer who received answers. As a member of the Supreme Court, backed up Jesus and said, you're not going to judge him that easily. And now, through life transformation, threw off everything he knew, and he picked up the beaten, bloody body of Jesus. Not only that, he participated 
in the wrapping and the carrying to the tomb and the burying of him. That's life transformation. Do you see, I think, why John wanted us to know this story? Because if somebody as learned and as educated and as highly respected, a Supreme Court member, could get beyond his obstacles about his relationship to who Jesus really was, John's saying, you can do it too. You have no bigger obstacles in your life than what Nicodemus had. A Pharisee of the Pharisees. A member of the Sanhedrin. And he understood because he investigated it himself. So at a point like this, young people especially listen. Just like Bob Savage said to me when he came down the aisle, God will call you to account on this someday. You have only two choices. You can be like the ruling class and turn and say, he is guilty of death. Or you can be like Thomas, who fell on his knees and said, my Lord and my God. That's all you're left with, those two choices. John left you this record for a reason. Perhaps this is the day you need to meet God face to face. I'm going to invite you to do that. After the service today, I'll just be standing up here talking with people. If you want to come up, tug on the arm, poke me in the shoulder, hit me in the back, I don't care. I'll be happy to talk with you about where you're at in your relationship with Christ. The rest of you who are in the faith, you'll be praying for those who are not. Join me in prayer.